Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Paradise Talks podcast. I'm your host, Emma Bartholomew. In this series, we'll chat to some expert guests from the creative industries to get their take on the state of their sector, their advice for the rest of us, and their hopes for the future. Today, we ask the blunt, honest question, what the fuck has happened to the music industry? The music industry, like so many other creative sectors, has really been going through it for the past six months, to put it mildly. Frankly, it feels like it's been taking kick after kick in the balls. And we're not out of the woods yet, with things looking pretty uncertain for the foreseeable. Artists, labels, festivals and venues have all dug in to stay the course, coming up with ever more resourceful ways to maintain both content creation and fan engagement. But is it enough? I'll ask today's guests for their honest thoughts and any advice they can give to the music community on how to keep looking forward. There are many known unknowns for the music industry as we look out across an uncertain landscape, including how long will this hell last and what's the mid to long-term damage to the industry? Who can tell? But one of the positives we've seen during COVID has been a sense of solidarity amongst the various sectors of the industry. This has been especially important for artists who are often self-employed and may feel that they have little in the way of a safety net. They've been told for years that live is where the money is, but that doesn't help an emerging all-profile artist with no hope of touring or stepping onto a real physical stage, whether it's in a pub or at a festival anytime soon. It's my pleasure to welcome my guests for this debut episode of Paradise Talks, CEO of the Association of Independent Music, better known as AIM, Paul Pacifico, and CEO of A&G Sync, Roy Lidstone. Welcome both, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Emma. Now, this one is really for both of you. This is a fairly terrifying time for the music industry, as we all know. And every week, every day, there seems to be more news coming in. But I wanted to start on a positive and give some credit where where it's due. What are some of the best practices that you've been observing in terms of digital fan or audience engagement, whether directly by artists or their labels while live has been off the table? Paul, maybe I could start with you on that one. Yeah, with pleasure. Thank you, Emma. Um, look, there's no glossing over how tough these times are. Um, and I think for me, what's been really interesting is to look at how AIM's members as a community of businesses have really had to uh, reassess the whole the whole sort of value chain in their business. Um, there's no point doing stuff at the front end if the back end isn't right. There's no point engaging with fans if that engagement doesn't drive revenues. Um, so I've seen members really starting from the ground floor doing... Uh, metadata health checks, as boring as that sounds, spring cleaning, all of their archiving files, making sure that everything is up straight and making their processes as efficient as possible. And, you know, it, it doesn't sound very sexy, but it is incredible how important that stuff is and how much that can make the difference um, in these really tough times where every penny counts. Um, so one of the things I've been seeing is, first of all, attention to detail in the administration and the setup of the business, but then also um, some fantastic creativity 
in kind of really personalizing the engagement between artists and fans. Um, one of the strengths of the independent sector is, is I guess, these are smaller businesses that are more nimble. They're more, you know, directly in touch with the coalface. Um, and seeing different labels with different artists taking very different approaches has been has been fantastic. And actually, some of it's been kind of back back to a very old school approach with mailing lists and physical. Others have been you know using new platforms like whether it's you know um, TikTok or whatever's coming next in exciting ways. Um, the whole spectrum. Um, so lots of lots of positives to take from this. Um, and you know the old saying that necessity is the mother of invention has certainly been the case. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would totally agree with you that we shouldn't kind of poo-poo the admin side of, of the industry right now. It may not be the sexiest aspect, but it's so important to get your all your ducks in a row when we're facing this kind of crisis. Roy, has anything particularly impressed you maybe on in terms of the solidarity in the industry or any great campaigns that you've seen to kind of keep the the audience engaged with with artists' work? Sure, yeah. First, I mean, firstly, I would say that I agree with just everything Paul has just said there. Um, it is absolutely important to, to look at beyond the end of this situation that we're in at the moment. So actually using this time to get everything in order, to prepare, to record where you can, to uh, develop your online profile, I think is all a very positive thing to do um the impact is is obvious i mean as you know the sector that i work in is within film and television advertising uh, synchronization but we can feel it and see it right across the board we can we can see how it's affected artists that we work closely with that would have um launched their album and toured it this year uh, and the financial impact of that you know after spending all the money preparing that album and making it and getting it ready for market. Um, the positive things I've seen, absolutely, I think there is a, a camaraderie. I think there's a, a real understanding that this is the music industry as a whole um, and that we all play a part in it. And to get through this, um, my biggest worry is, is when we do eventually come back to whatever normal is, um, how much damage has been done. So the most important thing is, is to prepare and get everything in place as much as possible. I think some positive things I've seen, depending on where the artist sits, of course, it depends on the size of their audience, but um, I've seen really good engagement from emerging artists really working it, really figuring out how to communicate with artists almost one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and it, it's paying off. It's You can see the connectivity grow. Um, you can see them looking for ways of monetizing that even by, if they do have a reasonably sized audience to do um, a special paid live performance film from a studio. Um, so yes, I think, I think there is positive things and I do believe everybody is working very hard to see their way through this. Yeah, absolutely. And it does remind me on a on a kind of almost hourly basis that our global music industry is a community of human beings. And yes, some of them are artists with high profiles, some of them are not, but we are all in this together. Um, Roy, you mentioned there very importantly, the idea of monetizing um, 
initiatives like live streams. At times during this uh, pandemic situation, it's felt like every artist and their mum has been live streaming from a living room or an empty stage. Some have been really powerful performances with that kind of intimate one-to-one feeling, um, which is incredibly clever to recreate that through live streaming. But do you think that live streaming and other um, ideas like VR gigs are really a viable part of the future beyond the COVID horizon? Do, do you think maybe that um, one of the positives in terms of finding monetization through live streaming, for example, is that accelerated growth that's kind of come about, as Paul said, um, necessity being the mother of invention. Do you think that's maybe one of the long-term positives of this basically horror show of a year that we've had? I think it. I think it's a good addition to what an artist has to do. I don't think it's a, a livelihood. I don't see how, you know, live streaming, uh, one-on-one performances, that kind of thing, is is a realistic model to grow the industry, to grow the artist's career. But I think it's a a new way of not a new way, but a better way of engaging whilst you're doing everything else. And um, I've seen some of our artists have fantastic personal response. And you know, watching a, a live stream performance and seeing that live feed of comments coming up all the time, it's a different experience to say performing in front of an audience when you feel that instant reaction from a, an applause or a, or cheering. But to actually read personal comments from people as it's happening is it's quite a fascinating way. And, and also in listening to not just them saying, oh, that's amazing, but actually saying what it means to them, um, how much they're enjoying this, or could you play this song, or what does that song mean? And, and it almost feels a much more personal way of, of growing and developing your audience. But I think, again, it's all about scale. I mean, could... could um, Rihanna keep doing that. It's not realistic. We need to fill stadiums and arenas and and concert halls all the way down to small live venues because we all feed off the same thing. It's not you can't take one part of the industry out without it affecting all of the other parts of the industry. And I think it's really important how we all feed into the growth of the industry together. Yeah, all part of this music ecosystem. Um Back to how things are right now, Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, things are changing hourly and daily and artists and the rest of the music community are having to listen very carefully and follow the news in terms of government support and initiatives, Um, whether the dates are moving. Today, we've seen that some of the dates are moving for various um, grants that were looking possible for the sector. Paul, your work with AIM and the support that you've garnered from British music organisations for artists and specifically freelancers has been tireless since March and admirable. Are we doing enough as a wider industry, do you think, to support our artists in terms of access to funds and grants? Uh, You know, the easy answer... Uh, to all of these questions, of course, is yes and no. Um, There's only so much, I think, that the industry can do. Could we do more than we're doing now? Yes, I think we could, actually. I think we could be more targeted. um, And I think we could do a lot more to reinforce um, 
the idea that we're an interconnected ecosystem. Those are easy things to say. We've already been talking about them in this in this conversation right now. Um, but there's a very uh, almost, I guess, uh, I don't know how to put this exactly. There's a there's a really uh, difficult calculation I think being made by the government right now. Um, and I I don't say this with any kind of enjoyment or relish, but I think they're trying to figure out. That on the basis that every part of the economy is going to be deeply damaged, um, which parts can grow back no matter how damaged they become and which parts will be lost forever? And this is a really difficult question to get into because our emotional response is that we all want to help each other and support each other. But you can clearly see that the government's response isn't going to enable that. So there's a big gap in the middle there that we as an industry have to consider um, and we have to, I guess, take responsibility for. And I think you know, the AIM COVID crisis fund was, if you like, AIM's response to that question, which was to say we felt there was a big gap that was missing uh, you know, the self-employed, freelancers, single directors of micro businesses, people that couldn't really benefit from the government support that was on offer. And so we tried to, and we, we did actually successfully raise quite a lot of money, £800,000 so far. We're hoping to get to a million in total um, from our members, from from other stakeholders and partners. PPL very generously gave 150000 of that amount. Um, and we've been able, we think, to try and do our bit. I think if everybody can do their bit, um, we might just see a lot more of our colleagues, friends, um, and frankly, our infrastructure surviving because our infrastructure isn't really stuff so much as, as you're right, Emma, it's people. The music industry is built on people, not on things. Um, and if we allow those teams to vaporize, those really interesting creative teams of people, um, we really do... I think prejudice our ability to bounce back and rebound and start to to really cook again once we're able to to get back to work properly. Yeah, and you you mentioned something very important there, which is the um, the human impact, which I'll, I'll come on to in a second. But um, just thinking about recovery, keeping up with news of venues uh, not being able to open, and this this is not just in in our sector, the music industry. It's also today we've heard. Um, announcements about cinema chains potentially closing, maybe temporarily, maybe longer term. Um, but on the music side, from the smallest of pub stages to the likes of the Royal Albert Hall, following that news has been tortuous and heartbreaking. I mean, where where the hell do they start their recovery? Is that is that just a kind of as and when, or is there any planning possible? <laughs> do you, Roy, do you want to have a go at that? I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, who, who? If anyone can answer that, I'll give you a prize. But no, no mean, one can. No one no, can. No, there's, no. there's no planning until until there is planning, and where there is planning, it, as you've seen, it, it can change very, very quickly. Um, and and I think we all have to be responsive to these external circumstances and do our best within them. Uh, my concern is that the government feels it's done its bit with this £1.57 billion uh, cultural support fund. Um, and I worry very much that it will be um, carved up very much in line with the way that arts grants have been carved up traditionally with with almost nothing coming to contemporary music. Um, and this sort of um, inability to understand the nuance between 
uh, subsidized arts and commercial music you know commercial music has been quite quite bad actually at at getting um government and public support in the past and there's been this sort of uh, firewall between the subsidized arts and commercial music I, you know those days are gone that membrane has to be porous and i think government and other bodies have to recognize um that you know um commercial music needs support and that it has a huge benefit um and, and that it's not as clear-cut as it used to be in the old days yeah i, I agree and, and you know music and live music is a significant earning earning potential for the uk brings in a lot of money and my my worry my fear is is that without a longer plan to get through this um so many people in the industry this is including film television and advertising freelancers um how many engineers can sustain themselves for what period of time and if we if we are looking at a long relatively long period which i believe we are before we get back to that level of normality, um, what part of the infrastructure will collapse on itself? Just the supply side there, for example, um, touring, touring equipment, you know, just that alone itself, lighting, and then when everybody wants to come back and do live gigs, is the infrastructure there to actually deliver into that? Um, so, yeah, it's it's very complicated, and and I don't think there's – no one can say, as I think as Paul was saying, there's not an easy answer to this. There's not just a, a magic wand that says, oh, we need X number of billions given to us and that will fix the problem. I think it, it is, there is some collective planning need to be done so that when things do get back to a normal, that the infrastructure is strong and able to come back, bounce back. And if you think about it, if there, if there was a position when people could go back to festivals, go back to live gigs, then they would, and they would do it quickly. But we have to be prepared to handle that when that opportunity arises. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned festivals there, Roy, uh, just to um, maybe reflect on some of the festivals that have been missed over the summer, obviously a huge part of revenue for the music industry, not just in the UK, but internationally. And all of those, as you mentioned, those they're not even ancillary um, services or elements of our industry. We're all part of the same ecosystem and we're all codependent on one another. Um, when it when it comes to the festivals that we've missed as music lovers, obviously nothing can replace the vibe of being at a festival with all the other music fans, waiting for your favourite artist set, the adrenaline, queuing for the lose for hours on end, trying to find your tent again in the early hours, all the fun things. But on a more commercial level, are there effective ways for festival organisers and promoters to engage audiences around digital editions that somehow encapsulate the festival experience and its brand identity, bringing, I mean, bringing in the elements of the festival experience, bearing in mind that all festivals have their own personality? Or do you think that it is something more tangible than that? Do you think all the elements, all the the staging, the lighting, the crew, is that is that all part of the festival experience that is simply irreplaceable? Roy, I'll, I'll go to you for a, for a first response to that one. Yeah, um, I would I would definitely say that that's the that's the problem. It's an immersive experience to which you cannot replace a two hundred thousand people or fifty thousand people standing in a field. The other thing that's 
I think has shown its head here is how much over decades music on television has been removed. Now, there's a lot of opportunity that could could have been for where we could be seeing you know live broadcast performances from studios. There's none of those shows anymore that you would used to tune into to watch uh, your big artist or new artist coming in. And um, there's nothing that's really filling the void other than the internet. And the problem for up-and-coming artists is how do you get that exposure? How, how do you get people to come and look at what you're doing on stage? Well, a festival is a great way for, for, you know, for getting on the bill, for getting opportunities to play in front of big audiences and and getting on that circuit, let alone the revenue that the uh, the bigger artists earn. But but again, I you know defer a lot of this to Paul because he has more firsthand experience with with artists and management. And Paul, just before I come to you on that one, can I just add uh, something for you, Roy? Um, yeah. Do you think that those TV shows that, I mean, as you said those words, so many memories were flashing through my mind yeah. of, of my, you know, my happy childhood and teenage years yeah. watching watching those shows. Do you think that the TikToks and the Insta TVs of this world have replaced that? Or do you think there could be a place for those to come back into our kind of uh, crosshairs? I think it doesn't have to be either or. It could be both. And, and one can actually help the other. Um, I don't know the exact reasons. It's obviously to do with revenue and viewing figures. But I think there's a, such a, a new connection or a bigger connection to music on a, a wider scale now that there is opportunity for the right old grey whistle test to come back again and, and, and take these opportunities to, to really engage with musicians and understand what a real live performance is about you know and even even the the concepts of top of the pops you know just to to engage with um the, the fun and the enjoyment of of watching them your artist on the screen absolutely paul anything you wanted to add on either the kind of digital uh, festival experience or maybe what Roy's just been talking about the um, the broadcast element the TV element of maybe showcast showcasing the especially the emerging end of the talent market yeah I, th- I think it's I think it's a lovely idea that we come back to time and time again we in the music industry I mean this sort of quite nostalgic idea of wouldn't it be great if top of the pops for the 21st century existed but I think I think the reality is um, that's not going to happen. And and I think if anything, lockdown and the COVID sort of sense of isolation, I think has accelerated consumer expectations around on demand and personalization. Um, so I think I think we're less likely to go back to a kind of bulge bracket, you know, middle of the road music TV experience like a kind of top of the pops or grey whistle test. And I think in fact what we're going to do is go further and further into hyper specialization. Um, through platforms and whether that's, you know, uh, the big incumbents like YouTube who've been you know, bringing to market very rapidly uh, monetization um, opportunities for artists in different ways. And they'll be rolling out more and more of those, I'm sure, over the next six months or so. Um, and then also, you know, TikTok, Insta TV, all those things that are coming around to help artists do that. I think we're going to see more of that rather than going back to a bulge bracket experience. I would get, I'd say though, one of the positives of COVID actually for me um, is that all of those things, if, if you've got a festival that's trying to re, um, 
sort of re-engineer itself as an online virtual experience, um, you're suddenly into quite a complex um, area of licensing where you're bringing much more into conflict sort of the job of the record label, the job of the promoter or the event producer. And, and the rights situation can become uh, very messy very quickly. And I know, uh, you know, as AIM, we've, we've worked on some, we led the development of guidance to record labels on how to handle these situations because it is really, really tricky. But the upside, and this comes back again, some of the things we talked about earlier about the people side of the business. Um, everybody I speak to in the business where they've come up against this complexity has taken the view that we need to ignore it, not ignore it, but we need to shelve those conversations till, till later. Let's get the stuff out there. Let's get artists on stage in whatever, whether that's virtual or, or in a studio being, being filmed directly, whatever it is, the most important thing is actually to get the music out there, get people working, get things happening. The rights landscape will come back to you later. Um, and that for me has been really heartening. And I, and I do think an absolute embodies this sense of, um, you know, collectivization in a sense that gives us so much strength as an industry when we do come together. Um, so that's been really positive. I, you know, look, seeing a festival online is never going to be the same um, as squelching through mud in a field that we all love to do. Um, there is, you know, um, we use the word community a lot at AIM and, and, and that, that whole word community is based in the sense of communal, a commune coming together, shared experience, that sense of, you know, um, human connection, whether it's between members of the audience or the audience and the band, the artist, whatever it is. And I think, I think of course we miss that on a very human level. But at the same time, I think the virtual experience has been accelerated massively by the COVID crisis. We're getting better at it. It's getting better. Uh, I do think there is a long-term future for virtual engagement, whether that's through VR, AR, extended reality, all of these technologies that are now you know, really coming much more into the mainstream because of isolation. Um, and I think we'll, we'll end up in a hybrid world, you know, because sometimes you can get to Glastonbury other times you can't, uh, but you can still enjoy a lot of what's going on, if not the full experience. Well, Paul, can I just ask you a question myself? Let's see what your thoughts were on this. I, I know that it's still early days in terms of the testing technology, but is there a, a possibility on the horizon that if there was a, a, an almost on-the-spot test that you could control uh, the a venue or an audience or um, numbers coming in by on-the-spot testing. Is that something that could be realistic? A lot of people have been talking about those kind of eventualities. And I think, I think it, there are two sides to this equation, possibly three. Uh, what, one is, you know, what we're permitted to do by government and regulation. The other is what artists and promoters are prepared to do. Uh, and the third is what audiences have an appetite for. And I think all three of those things have to come together. Um, and we're going to have a job as an industry to kind of fly the flag uh, and really help make people feel safe coming back to crowded environments. Um, I was thinking, actually, Roy, while you were talking about the um, the online experience of the paradox of, of how um, the humanity of an in-person performance is so immediate, but yet the personalization of a of a virtual performance that allows comments and questions and direct communication sort of there's this paradox that it's kind of both have elements of being closer together and yet 
further apart. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, immediate, immediate on the spot testing. I, I understand there are some trials at the moment. Um, I think I heard the other day is a, there's a pharmaceutical company, Roche, who are bringing to market, I think a 15 or a 30 minute test. Um, so these things will come about and, and my, you know, I, I'm going to remain optimistic that there'll be a vaccine, that it will be distributed widely and that we will be able to return to a sense of normality, hopefully quite quickly. But from a festival point of view, that's slightly irrelevant when you think they've got an 18 month lead up to their next event. It's not like a, you know, you can support a venue in, in shutdown and, 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 and it can come back to life pretty quickly. Um, but I, I do worry particularly about the independent festivals um, who, who have a really long lead time and some very complex um, negotiations in terms of licensing um, and the other things I have to get over. I mean, by licensing, I mean, you know, sort of um, alcohol licenses and, and, and public, public event licenses on top of all the music stuff they've got to deal with. Yeah, and without being pe- pessimistic, um, but there is a certain, we've talked about, you know, the honesty of the conversation here. I mean, just from, just thinking about this myself, even if there was a vaccine, the vaccine is not 100. We, we know based on information we, we uh, hear and read, it will never be 100% successful. That That's not how vaccines work. So there's there's going to be a situation of trying to live alongside this situation. And I, I can imagine that if they could get the testing done to such a technical level that it was you know, 99.9% accurate almost on the spot, you could have some level of, of control where you've got the vaccine out there. But if you want to attend a, a large gathering, you have to do this test. And at least that gives the confidence of the other people because myself being diabetic, for example, would, would still have to question, would I take the risk regardless of the assumption that people have had, a, had their uh, vaccine? to go into that crowded room, which is what you were saying, Paul, is that that's one of the elements. It's not just, oh, yes, we can do it. It's also, is the confidence there to do it? And financially, does it make sense for the promoter and the venue to put that on if they have such external costs? I mean, just jumping ahead slightly here, within within film and TV, there's films being made now. And they're trying to work within those kind of restrictions, like controlling the number of people on set, testing in, testing out. Um, but it's putting a huge cost on to making those productions, which is somewhere down the road. That's got to, They've got to find that. You know, if you imagine if they've got to put on, let's say, twenty percent additional cost, but it's a fifty million dollar movie. That's a huge amount of money to find into the production in order just to go ahead and film it now under those new restrictions. So I wonder, you know, will the same apply? There's not going to be this, okay, we've got this vaccine, so all of a sudden we can all start going to festivals and major concerts. Yeah, there's so much to consider. Paul, did you want to jump in there? I did. I was I was going to really build on what Roy was saying. I mean, I, I lead the music industry working group um, that, 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 that liaises with government and we wrote the back-to-work guidelines uh, guidance for for working in um, uh, recording studios, rehearsal facilities, and for music videos, and um, and so we had a lot of liaison, a lot of roundtables with people in the film industry. You're absolutely right, Roy. That they they were calculating it was a twenty percent cost increase on production um, based on the back to work guidance for film and TV. Um, 
yeah, this this is a, a very real problem. And the other the other challenge that we all face um, is, of course, on a on a film set. I mean, let, well, let me tell you a recent example was I was listening to someone talking about um, getting a soap opera back to work, and how they actually had two sets, two sections of the cast completely isolated from one another in case one section came down. Uh, with COVID. So it's a bit like if anyone's got kids going back to school or anything, you know, if one kid in a class or in a school suddenly tests positive, there are all sorts of knock-on effects for for tons and tons of people around them. And and if that happens on a film set, um, you know, they're, they're trying to find ways to deal with it. But if that happens on a gig or in the run-up to a gig, you know, what if one roadie on a big tour suddenly tests positive? Does that mean the whole tour is down for 14 days at this stage? Um, it's even more, sorry, sorry, no, sorry no, to go for it, Roy. Just, just to add to that, I mean, do a, do a comparison between a major festival and a major movie. Yes, if anyone on the set, if the roadie gets it or if a, the lighting guy, boom guy gets it, that's one thing. But the insurances for these, for these films are enormous now because if the lead cast member or any of the lead cast get this and have to be offset and you have to shut a film down, before you finish filming all the scenes, you are talking astronomical amounts of losses. Mm. So I, I think, yeah, Roy, the, the point is, the point I was, and I agree with you, but it doesn't have to be a lead cast member to, that comes down with it to shut the film down. It could be a boom on, operator. And, and the fact is anyone that's come into contact with them then suddenly is is having to quarantine. And this is where the 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 the, the compound effects, the cumulative effects of, of even relatively isolated incidents um, can I think put us in a place where the whole entertainment industry is going to feel very, very stop-start for some time to come? And yeah, I think there's so many complex variables that we just put, can't possibly keep control of or even even monitor from one minute to the next. But returning to the to the heartbeat of the industry, the kind of human heartbeat of the industry, without which we wouldn't have a music business, the artist and their material. You both spoke there about the the film and TV industry. And I, I'd love to give any artist listening some really practical tips here, because, of course, if artists are writing their own tracks, one way that they can keep monetizing is via sync, the, the potential of sync, the legal use of music in media like ads, TV, film and online. And obviously, as you've both just been saying, those industries are just as affected as our music industry has been. Roy, could you give us some practical tips? Would an artist, do they have to be completely polished, look great online, have that polished brand, decent following stats, all those all those kind of bits of jargon that we talk about so much in the music industry? Do they would they need all of that to be in place before tracks can be considered for sync or synchronization in in TV or or adverts, for example? First of all, to, to answer that. You could almost say that the, the number one, the rule of sync is that there are no rules in sync. Um, so, yes, the more an artist has presence, the more uh, aware there's, there's a stronger selling point to when it comes to the, the sync opportunity. I'll I give you an example for that. If, if a, a supervisor or an advertising agency is looking at a piece of music for a brand, they will at some point need to sell that into the brand as to why they're suggesting that this piece of music works for it. They will have 
almost definitely a number of options on the table. So the stronger that your story is, the greater chance you have of landing it. Um, it's it's pretty rare where you have the only likely piece of music that could ever be used on that one ad. Uh, and if you do, then it's probably because it's a classic tune and the, the brand are falling over themselves to get it. So any marketing that you can bring to improve your chances of landing is a good thing. So commercial releases, uh, online profile, these are all conversations that at some point we may have with a, a potential use. Saying that depends again. You know, it could be we're working on a Netflix scene and there's a, there's a track that just sounds great for it. Supervisor loves it. It's an easy clearance. There's no other rights owners involved for argument's sake. What we call a one-stop shop where the artist is the rights owner of both master and publishing. It's a very easy deal to be done for a few thousand dollars job done. Um, but you can see how that scales up. The bigger the opportunity, the bigger the brand, for example, in advertising, then the more that the client or the director wants to know why they should engage with that piece of music. So the answer is yes. Always promote yourself. Always be as active as you can. And would that same uh, philosophy apply to... Um the, the potential opportunities via composing to commissions or briefs where they may, there wouldn't be a, a pre-existing track, for example, but an artist might write something to a, to a brief for a brand, for example, Do, would they still need that, that brand themselves, in a sense? I, I think, to, you know, to be realistic about this, it, it's a bit of a myth. I mean, th those opportunities are very, very rare. If they are, that's because... The people involved in it, say, for example, the director or the ad agency, have decided that they want to have an artist to create some music for this particular use. And they may well have artists in mind already for that. Um, there's plenty of composers that do that job of actually just composing to order or creating a library of compositions that are available for use. So I think I'm always cautious to say to artists, oh, start writing for sync. Think about you know, how this would work, because almost certainly they get it wrong because it's not their role. The best role of an artist is to write great music, record great songs, and that will find its way through. We had from time to time gone to a specific artist and said, we would like you to record a piece of music for this. It may be a cover, for example, but do it in your way because we like your sound and style and that fits the brief. Um, but the, the very general rule is to try not to think about a sync when you're writing a song, because more often than not, that's exactly what they sound like. And they're not convincing. They're not believable and they don't land. Um, yeah, that, that would be my advice. Just, just write great songs and they will find the way through where there's an opportunity. But I do think you have to bear in mind that, yes, the industry has hit, hit hard at the moment. As with all of the industries in the world, there's very few maybe other than pharmaceutical companies that can do extremely well out of this situation. So we are in a reduced opportunity zone. Advertising has been coming back. Um, thankfully, they're not just doing, oh, can you send us a song that's about being together and we're all in this together? Because I think even the, uh, the viewing audience is sick and tired of, of seeing those commercials. So we're now seeing 
you know, great creative ideas coming through and thinking beyond just this message of how do we get through COVID? We're all together, you know. Yeah. So that is increasing, but as as we mentioned earlier, um, yes, there are new film and TV productions underway, but it's not the same as it was. It's not the same number. We know from the news recently about James Bond being postponed yet again. Um, so those film companies are aware of how much product they can make and then what do they do with it? They've got to bring it to the market. So all of the streaming platforms, of course, have been fantastic at giving those opportunities, but it doesn't work for every type of movie. The popcorn movie bums on seats things. This is a big problem. What, what do you do? They tried it with Tenet and it, it, it didn't really work as well as they hoped. So I think, Paul, maybe you wanted to jump in on something that Roy had said there. Yeah, very much. Uh, Roy, I think you said something really interesting when you said, try try not to write for sync. <clears throat> I think that was very insightful. One of the things I'm always mindful of, um, sync is always held up as the sort of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow in some senses. And, um, and I always like to put that into perspective. Um, the entire sync market makes up 2% of global music revenues. Um, we tick above that in the UK. The UK is an excellent market for sync. It's responsible for 4% of UK music revenues. Um, so I think that is really important. It, it can feel like a disproportionate win because it's an upfront fee. So, you, so it's great for cash flow. You get the money in advance. That's, all that stuff's fantastic. Um, but the minute you try and build a business based on just 4% of your potential revenues as a mix, um, you know, you're asking for trouble. Um, I think one of the key things from my side that I that I see is is two two aspects of what you said. One is one is definitely when you said one stop shop, the rights being in in one place. That comes back to having a real eye on your administration, making sure your data's right, your songs are registered properly, that you know where all the rights sit. Because if a sync deal happens, it tends to happen quite quickly. And and if the if the phone rings or an email comes in, you've got to go back with confidence and say yes, we can do it. Here's what, you know, everything's in one place. Everything's easy. Make it easy. But the other thing is the advantage of being well represented in that market. Um, it is a people business. Um, you do need a lot of trust when deals are moving very quickly. You know, people want to know that they're dealing with reliable partners and counterparties. They know they're not going to be let down at the last minute or so, so, something isn't quite as it was stated to be and all those sort of wrinkles that can come up. Um, and that's one of the great advantages of working with an excellent team and whether that's your label, your publisher or, or a sync agent, um, just making sure that if that is a market you're exploring, you're, you're doing your part to make sure you've got the right partners in place, the right representation so that you have the best possible chance of success. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. And I think it was very important what you said there. You gave some perspective on where sync sits in an artist's career. And we're often discussing and explaining this to um, to managers or young artists where there's a there's almost an assumption right i've got a record out so do i get a sync you know it's just there's not that number of opportunities relative to the number of commercial releases and just everybody assuming that every song that they write automatically deserves or warrants an opportunity for a sync isn't realistic and it's simply part of the makeup of an artist it's an important one because like anything you could get lucky for one of a better description you could find yourself in a situation we've we've had artists in this where 
the right sync has been done. It's been moved quickly, as often is the case, as Paul's just said. We're often doing in very short turnaround times to get licensing terms agreed, signed off, and it could be in the edit within days. Um, I think the shortest one I did was 24 hours, uh, where it literally was agreed and then aired. Now, the benefit of that is that if it's the right opportunity, it could be just a little background piece in some TV show that doesn't have a tremendous music engagement, but it could be another series that does have a stronger music engagement. And if you're not in place, if your admin's not in place, if your track isn't available on all platforms, if it's not Shazamable, if it's not collected correctly because it's not been done at the PROs, then you're really shooting yourself in the arm. You've had this one possible opportunity to maximize and you failed because you're not ready for the audience to be able to engage with it. I, I remember uh, an artist manager who has a US artist who's been incredibly successful with sync. I mean, literally millions of dollars of, of income over years. And she said to me that when this artist landed her first sync, when the audiences wanted to know who they who she was, they were able to see who she was. Oh, this is a real artist. It's not just a one-off song. She's got an album out. She's touring and was then able to engage and then expand that into her whole career. So Sync is um, it's a marketing tool. It's an opportunity to increase your promotion. It's an opportunity to earn some revenue on whatever scale. It depends on what the usage is. But it's not the be-all and the end-all. The most important thing is an artist to develop their career across all opportunities. And would you say that the status, the situation that we're living through right now, the, the COVID situation, do you think that has changed the use of music permanently or will the longer term impact fall away as we get back to some kind of semblance of normality, whatever that will look like in the future? A quick answer from me is, no, it, it hasn't really changed it. In terms of synchronisation, it hasn't, because a synchronisation is a synchronisation. It's licensing your music to an audio, to, uh, to a visual use and putting the two things together, audio and visual. So as long as there is a media, whether that's TV, uh, streaming, advertising, computer games, there will be a requirement to do those licences. So I don't think it's changed it dramatically in any way. I think I would ask the question, uh, it's quite interesting, has COVID changed the way we use music? I would, I'd ask the question, what we use music for? You know, what is the function that music serves in our lives, in our, in our culture, in our world? Um, and actually, fundamentally, the human relationship with music won't change. I think how we engage with music does change. We've seen it change over the years. It will continue to change. Um, and I think it will be affected by COVID in the long term. I think COVID has accelerated shifts to digital. Certainly the age profile of customers on streaming platforms has changed as a result of COVID. Music listening ha habits have changed as a result of COVID. Those things will keep changing, keep evolving. But I think our underlying emotional, spiritual, psychological relationship uh, with music will remain. Yeah, I fundamentally agree with that. And it's a kind of eternal agreement, the universal power of music to 
bring us together across borders, across cultures, languages, nationalities, ages. It's it's so fundamental to who we are as human beings. It's a part of how we communicate and, and our emotions. I agree. So I just jump back in because, yes, you're absolutely right. One of the other things that we haven't touched on yet during this whole COVID experience has been this moment of stillness that I think gave rise to the circumstances of this real outpouring of concern, realization and awakening uh, for social justice and in particular, you know, uh, issues around racism, sexism and and other other areas of prejudice. Um, and I think actually one of the long-term changes from COVID will be the results of that. The music industry is going through an accelerated process of change to root out structural prejudices, I think to um, to you know just look at lineups in the future. Now that festivals have been paused, I cannot imagine a world in which a festival lineup in the future will look like the festival lineups up until now, where there have been one or two female artists in a sea of male artists. Or you know, um, and I just think the world the world is changing. You know, we're talking about the environment and sustainability. Things are not going to be the same in the future as they were in the past. I think areas of um, issues around social justice are receiving attention that they they absolutely need and warrant. Um, our industry is changing. The COVID, and I think the COVID crisis, that stillness that it that it forced upon us, I think did to a certain extent, you know, sort of make us ready for that moment of awakening. And and I think it's incumbent on all of us to grab the opportunities coming out of COVID, of course, to get back to work, but to get back to work in a better way. I 100% agree with, with everything Paul just said there. And uh, I think we, we're seeing it, not, not that it's perfect by any means, but we're seeing that the music industry as a whole responding very quickly to, to the movement, the, the feeling that things do need to change and do they do need to change quickly. And uh, I, I, I can already see it in just in, in film and TV productions. It's not there yet but you can see that there is a, a desire and um in terms of music there will always be music no matter what there's going to be music and there's going to be a demand for music and um through this period and beyond it it should continue to grow i think that's a very hopeful uh, note on which to end the conversation thinking about uh, the universal power of music, not just as the soundtrack to our lives and the unifier, but also as um, the vehicle with which we can drive forward all these very important social changes. And I guess when we can rely on music as an art form to do that, it will ever be present in our lives. And thank God for that. Paul Pacifico and Roy Lidstone, I want to genuinely thank you both so much, not just for your time, but your hugely valuable insights and your take on what the hell is going on in the music industry. You've been listening to Paradise Talks and next time we'll turn the spotlight on the TV industry. To discover more about the agency and Paradise Talks, visit www.paradise.london.